I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Book of Colossians, chapter 1. If uh, you are using the Bible that is located in the pulpit in front of you, I believe you can find that on page 1,168. So Colossians chapter 1 or 1,168 if you want to use the Bible in the pew in front of you. Now I'd invite you just to uh, read with me from the text that you see on the board behind me this morning. Let's read this, uh, let's read this passage together. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You know, uh, every year, year after year, there is a, is a reminder of the birth of Christ. We come back to this point again and again and again, year after year, and it's the most, I think, the most looked forward to time of the year. I know it especially is for a lot of the kids. Maybe, set, maybe, I don't know, for some kids, maybe their birthday is more exciting, but I think for most kids, I think they would say that Christmas is probably the most exciting. I know a lot of us look forward to seeing family. I know a lot of us look forward to uh, just the traditions of the holiday, going down to see the lights and, and just all kinds of stuff like that. Maybe you've got family traditions that you follow uh, I know one tradition that we always had was that we cooked a ham, and, and uh, one of the things I know that my, my uh, sister was cooking it one year, and she cut off about a third of the ham and put it on a separate tray and put it in the oven. And I asked her, I said, why are you doing that? And she said, well, that's the way mom always did it. And I thought about it. I said, that's the way, that is the way mom always did it. And so I went up to her, and I said, why, why have you always cut a third of the ham off put it on two separate trays, and then cook them at the same time. She said, well, that's the way Memo always did it. And so I went over to Memo. I was like, why did you do this? Why did you cut a third of the ham off and, and put it in two separate uh, trays in the oven? And she said, well, that's the way my mom always did it. And so we went to the nursing home that year, and by this time, we were just really curious. And we're like, Mama, why did you do this? Why did you cut a third of the ham off and put them in put them in two separate trays in the oven. She said, because my pan was too small. And so, you know, not, uh, not all traditions have, a, uh, have just a very sentimental past behind them. And by the way, that never happened in my family. That's a joke. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, we look forward to these kinds of things. And, and everybody knows, I think, especially in here, that Christmas is about the coming of our Lord. And we hear this story again and again and again, year after year after year. Uh, in fact, a couple of us were joking this year that, you know, we really ought to sing Christmas carols throughout the year because, you know, they're no less valid in, in June as they are in December, but uh, we just always associate this time with Jesus's birth. 
And we don't know exactly when he was born. We don't know the, I remember, if you've ever seen Back to the Future, you know it was December 25th, 0000 AD. Um, but we don't know that. In fact, our best guess is maybe it was in September, October, something like that. But the bottom line is we have no idea when he was born. But this is the day we commemorate. This is the day that we look back and, and have set aside as the birth of our Savior. And not just the birth of our Savior, but the birth of our King, and not only the birth of our King, but the coming of our God, that he has come to us in human nature to do what he has done. And you know, I think it's, uh, I think it's a common question, just like, just like that ham where you're wondering, why do you do this? Why do you do this? You, sometimes we can get in a in kind of a sequence where we've done something the same way for so long that we kind of forget why we are doing it. And we kind of forget why it's being done in the first place. And and it's always good to just kind of go back and remind ourselves of some basic truths. Remind ourselves of some basic reasons and ask the question, why did Jesus come? I don't think anybody really argues that Jesus did come. That Jesus came, that he lived, that is a matter of history. But what Jesus came to do and why he came, that is a matter of theology. And I don't really think that, like I said, except the most radical scholars who really just have an ax to grind, I don't think that anybody denies that Jesus came. That is a matter of history. But the question we might ask this morning is the question of theology. Why did Jesus come? And that's where we come to Colossians chapter one. It's not a, it's not a very uh, traditional Christmas text. In fact, I think just about all of my sermons this year for Advent have kind of avoided the traditional Christmas text that you tend to hear this time of year. But uh, I, I thought this was really good because it answers that question. If you know the story of Colossus, you know that they are facing heretical teachings, that they're going through all kinds of questions about who is Jesus? Is he God incarnate or is he, or is he kind of the end of a long chain of, of diminuations of God or something like that? I mean, did God have to diminish himself to come to earth? I mean, all of these questions are being asked in the Colossian church and Paul is writing this book to answer these questions and in these three verses that we're gonna look at this morning, very briefly, I promise, but in these three verses we're gonna look at, he answers the question of why Jesus came. And this is what he came to do. And in this verse, we see some wonderful truths. And he's gonna give three aspects of that answer, three dimensions, if you will. Or you could just say three separate answers. However you wanna word it, there are, there are three realities that he brings up in this text that I think are important to remind ourselves of today. And so we see here, first of all, why did Jesus came? He came because of our lost condition. He came because of our lost condition. Look in, look in verse 21. He says, and you, that is the Colossians, and, and by extension, that is all Christians who are reading this letter, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Now, I want you to notice, <coughs> excuse me, I want you to notice very carefully how Paul words this. It's, it's very particular how he puts it together. 
So let's just talk about the words first. He says here that we were alienated. We were strangers. We were aliens to the covenant, both to God and to the people of God. That word alienated means that we were cut off. We, were, um, we had no ability to come. In fact, um, there's a famous inscription that was found around the Jerusalem temple, and, and it uses a, a version of this word. And the word says, and the sign says, to all foreigners or to all aliens, you may not pass beyond this point of the temple. And if you do, you're taking your lives in your own hands. Now, it's not that wordy, but that's the sense of the inscription. And what that indicates is that if you are in this day, if you are a Gentile, unless you are a someone who is a member of the people of God, you have no right and you have no ability to approach God. And yet even the Jews did not have that ability. There was a certain point where the average Jew could go and then there was no more. And then there was a certain point where the priest could go and then there was no more. And then one time per year, the high priest was able to go into the most sacred place that represented the presence of God itself. And that he was able only to go one time per year. And according to tradition, they used to put bells on him and tie a rope to his foot. And that way, if he did something wrong, if he fell dead in the most sacred place, they can pull him out by the rope. Understand that coming into the presence of God was something that was scary. It was something that was dreadful. It was something that was life-threatening. And unless you had the right, unless you had the privilege to come into the presence of God, it meant certain death. Even times when people would reach out and touch the ark, which represented his throne, to touch the ark was immediate death. Even one gentleman who was even trying to save it from falling, and yet good intentions didn't matter. Approaching the presence of God is a threatening thing. And that's what this term means, that those who are alienated from God have no right or status to approach him whatsoever. He exists in pure light, and in him there is no darkness whatsoever. And darkness cannot come into the presence of God. This is our status. But it shows itself in a couple of ways. It reveals itself in our lives in a couple of different ways. It says here that you are alienated and hostile in mind. Maybe your, maybe your translation says enemies in your mind. We were enemies of God. Our minds were set against him. Now, I don't think that necessarily means that every single lost person is shaking his fist at God and, and cursing God. I don't, I don't think every lost person in the world is doing that. Of course, we, we know that they're not. But what it does mean is that in our natural state, in our birth state, as you, if you will, in our most natural place, there are none who seek God. No, not one. There is none who does good. No, not one. And we are opposed to him and his purposes. And even when we acknowledge God, we want to do it on our terms, not on his terms. We are all of our mind and all of our attitudes. In fact, that word mind is not the typical word for mind. It's, it actually has the idea of our entire disposition. 
our entire framework, our entire worldview is something that is in opposition to God. Brother Stephan talks a lot about worldview. You know, one of the things we're very concerned about here at Calvary and, and one of the reasons why he leads the small group and the, and the structure that he does is because just because you believe the Bible doesn't mean you have a biblical worldview. And we want you to have a biblical worldview, right? And so that disposition, how do, we, how do we view the world? What lens do we see the world through? And of course, that shows itself in doing evil deeds. You know, it's really important to see the order here. That first we are alienated. And that leads to hostility in mind. And that leads to doing of the evil deeds. This, the, the doing of the evil deeds is the end result of who we are. We, we don't, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are born sinners. And because of that, we are alienated from God. That is, that is where we find ourselves. And the evil deeds that we do, that's only the product of who we are. It's the outworking of a depraved, corrupt heart. So think about this for a moment. How would you go about becoming friends with a famous person? Think about that. Just think of your, fam- just think of your favorite celebrity or your favorite sports star or, or maybe even the president. You know, for, for me, the example I like to use is Don Knotts. So let's, let's say that uh, I wanna go up to Don Knotts' house I wanna be his friend. And so I walk up to his house and I knock on the door and, I, and he answers the door. I doubt he would, but just for the sake of the illustration, let's say he answers the door and I said, hi, Don Knotts. My, my name is Randy and I think you and I could be best friends. So I'm gonna come on in your house and uh, let's watch a game together and let's play some ping pong and all of that because I know that you and I are gonna be best friends. Now, let me ask you a question. What would Don Knotts do? He'd probably call the cops right? <laughs> you know, and the nice, and the nice clean men with the, with the white coats are coming to get me, right? And so why is that? Because, and, and this is anybody who has any degree of dignity. Think about the president of the United States trying to be best friends with him. That's never going to work. You can't just approach someone who has that kind of status, You can't just walk up and say, I wanna be your friend and then just approach them on your terms. And the more you try to do that, the more of an enemy you are going to become of that person. That's that's when it gets into stalking and those kinds of things. Beloved, if if you want to be a friend of someone of status or someone of dignity, they have to approach you. They have to come to you on their terms. And that is why we celebrate this season is because that is exactly what God has done for us. He has come to us. We cannot approach God. He came to us. We were alienated from him. We were born into a condition that prevents us from being in his presence This is what it means to be lost. This is what it means to be lost. It's not that we choose to become that way. We're born that way, and we act it out every day of our lives, even in the ways that we attempt to do good. 
That's why Isaiah 64, 6 says, for all of us have become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Even, even the best things we try to do are like the worst things that we can produce. That's the best. Just like a famous person, if we desire to have a relationship with him, he must come to us. And that's exactly what Christ has done. That's exactly what he's done. So we see that. Why did he come? He came in order because of our lost condition, but he also came for his loving reconciliation. His loving reconciliation. Look in verse 22. It says, now he, God, uh, has now reconciled us, excuse me, Christ has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach. There's so much here that I want to be able to say, but I promised you that I would be brief this morning. I want to respect your time with your family and loved ones. So let's just say a couple things here. I want you to notice that he has reconciled us, even though we were his enemies. He came and reconciled himself to us. We did everything wrong. He did everything right. And yet he is the one who made the movement to come and repair the relationship. <laughs> he is the one who did it all. And there are two questions that are answered in this great verse. And the, and the first question is how? How did he do it? And that's what we see. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. I want you to notice, body of flesh, that's Christmas, right? That's Christ coming in, in a body of flesh. That's taking on humanity, John chapter one, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Even though he is fully God, he took on the nature of humanity. He did not see equality with God as something that he had to, he had to grasp onto and hold for fear of it being taken away from him. But instead, he emptied himself and he took on the form of a slave and then he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. <clears throat> in fact, a few verses just above us, it says, for in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Christ took on full humanity, but that in and of itself is not enough. It's not enough for God simply to come as a man. What else? We don't celebrate him simply because he was born, but the verse goes on to say he did this by his death. We celebrate his birth because we understand that he was born to die for us. By his death, he reconciled us. That was the, that was the outcome that we deserve, the penalty for our sins, but he took it upon himself on our behalf. Going back to Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, but Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all? That's the answer to the first question. How did, how did Christ reconcile us to God? He did it through his body of flesh. He did it through his death. But the second question is, why did he do it? Why did he do it? Going back to our main question. He did it simply this for the rest of the verse. In order to present you before him holy, blameless, and above reproach. Do you see the grouping of threes there? In verse 21, we are alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and now Christ has come, and in his death, what has he done? He's done it in order that he may present us 
holy, blameless, and above reproach. You see that parallelism there. He took on our death, but through that great transaction, he also gave us his own righteousness. He gave us his own holiness. And now we approach God as if we are just as holy and just as blameless as God is, himself is. Because the very righteousness of Christ has been placed on us, has been placed on our account. And not only this, he goes on to this third one. He says that to present you holy and blameless, that's kind of two sides of the same coin. If we're holy, obviously we're, we're gonna be blameless. That's, that's kind of looking at one side, the positive side and the negative side. But what does it mean to say that above reproach? What does that even mean? Well, some of you guys like to, like to work on cars, right? Some of you guys do. When you, go to, uh, when you go to a mechanic or something like that, that mechanic gets in your car and he gets all that grease and all that filth all over his hands, right? And so he goes and he washes it all off, hopefully not in his wife's sink, but kitchen sink, but he washes it all off and all the filth and all the germs are gone. His hands are clean, but that stain from the grease and all that is still on his hands, right? <clears throat> and it takes it a couple of days for that to go away. He still has the discolorization from all the filth and all the grime and all the grease that was on his hands. And what, and what Paul is saying here is that when Christ died for us, he did so not only to remove the actual grime and dirt, but he also removes the stain. He takes it all away. So not only the actual sin, but he also removes all of the guilt, all of the shame, everything is removed from us so that when we come before God, we stand before him in Christ with the perfect holiness, the perfect righteousness of Christ himself laid upon our account and all the rest is gone. In fact, Psalm 103 verses 10 and 14 says, he has not dealt with us according to our sins. He has not rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And as a father has compassion on his children, so Yahweh has compassion on those who fear him. That is the greatest gift of all, beloved. That's why we're here on Christmas morning, amen? That's why we came on Christmas Eve. That's why we're here, because this is what we celebrate. This is the gift. This is the wonderful provision that we have been given in Christ. And so what is our response? Let's, how do we respond to it? We saw our lost condition. We see our loving reconciliation, but let's look at our lasting response. Verse 23, it says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. How are we to respond Look at what he says here. He says, first and foremost, we are to respond in faith. And there's two aspects of this. There is 
beloved, an initial decision. There is, a, there is an initial point in which you come into contact with the gospel and you express and confess your faith in Christ and, and you do that through baptism, what we've been talking about lately. There is that initial conversion. There is that initial expression of faith. But I want you to see here that there is also an ongoing response. It's not just a one-time decision You don't just come up here, pray a prayer, and then go out and live your life as if nothing's ever happened. That there is a continuance of the faith. There is, in fact, it says here, if indeed you continue in the faith, that word continue could actually be translated persevere. If you persevere in the faith. Now, I want you to understand that Paul is not saying here that you must work to keep your salvation. That is not what he's saying here. But what he is saying is that if you continue in the faith, if you persevere in the faith, that is the evidence that you are holy and blameless and without approach before God. That is the evidence of it. And the scriptures do not back away from that kind of language, those kinds of warnings. We stand here In Calvary, we stand very clear on those great proclamations of evangelical faith that came out of the Reformation, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is more than fancy slogans. That is the lifeblood of this church. That is the the overall um, summary of our faith. There is no other name under heaven by which men and women must be saved but the name Christ Jesus And there is no other hope for the world but the hope of Christ. But notice it's not just a one-time decision, that it is a perseverance of the faith. And notice there's two parts to this, that on, on the one hand, we are preserved by Christ. Look back in verse 22, that's what he talked about. That we are presented to God as holy and blameless and above reproach. That is our preservation, But then that does not remove our responsibility to the Christian life, which we see in verse 23. These are not opposing truths. They are best friends. And they are the evidence that we will see. Again, he's not saying that we must work to keep our salvation. Do you think think Christ would do all of this for you? then just to turn you loose and say, well, you're on your own now. Do you think he would do that? No, he wouldn't do that. Beloved, he empowers us to holiness. The spirit prompts us to holiness. Philippians chapter two, verse 12, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But then in verse 13, he says, for it is God who gives you both the will and the strength to do his will. He empowers you. He helps you. But he doesn't do it for you. Sanctification is always gonna have a responsibility on our part. Justification, God alone. Christ alone. But as we live the life of a Christian, we see that there is responsibility. There is responsibility. So he says here, stable and steadfast, 
not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. You remember in 1 John, what does 1 John say? They went out from us. Why? Because they fell from their salvation? No, that's not what he said. Because they failed to work? No, that's not what he says. He says they went out from us. Why? Because they were never of us. And beloved, the proof of our salvation is that we persevere in the faith. So I wanna talk to two people this morning. If you're here this morning and you have never responded to this wonderful gift of salvation, I want you to understand there is a first time response. There is an initial point of decision. We're not not preaching easy believism. We're not preaching decisionistic salvation. We're not doing that. But I want you to understand there is an initial decision that you need to come to. You need to come to the point where you understand the gospel and you respond to it by faith alone in Christ alone. That you're not depending on anything else. You are repenting of your sins and you are turning to Christ as your Lord and Savior because he lived and he earned that righteousness that you need for you. And then he died for your sins. And then he rose on the third day and he ascended to the right hand of God. And now he's offering himself to you as a savior from his own wrath. You need to come to that point of decision in your life. But if you're here this morning and you have come to that point, You have made that good confession. You have received the word and then you have have confessed that in baptism. I wanna talk to you. I wanna ask you, are you remaining steadfast? There is a continuing of growth. There is a continuing of, of living in the faith. Are you shifting away? Beloved, we never grow beyond the gospel. We never grow beyond it. Don't fall into the temptation of thinking that now I've got the gospel, now I need other stuff to make me more complete or to make me more whole. No, the gospel has ever given you everything you need for life and godliness in this world. Everything you need is provided for you in Jesus Christ. Now you need only to live it out. It's yours It's given to you. Beloved, we do not need to grow beyond the gospel, but we do need to drink more deeply from the gospel. It is an ongoing well. It is a supply of living water that never runs dry. And if you drink that water, you will never thirst again. You don't move on to a different well. You dig deeper into the well and you quench your thirst over and over and over again. And you find that there is an abundant supply for all eternity. We will spend all eternity learning the riches of God's grace toward us and we will never exhaust the subject. Angels long to look into what we have. And so, beloved, this morning, will you walk away from it? Will you say, nah, that's not enough? Will you say, yeah, I know what Christ did, but I think I can do better? Will you say, no, the world has something better to offer me? Will you say that the 
that the gifts that I've received that are great this year but will be yesterday's news tomorrow, are you gonna say that those are better than the eternal gift of salvation that God has given you through Jesus Christ? How can you walk away from this? How can you walk away and say, not for me? Beloved, Christ is the light of the world. We are his body, the church. And may we continually, continually drink from that well and show its riches to the world in our lives. Why did Christ come? Simply put, because we needed him. Because we cannot, we have no life without him. He is our life, he is our righteousness, he is our wisdom, he is everything. And I pray he's everything to you this morning. Father, I thank you for these wonderful truths. I thank you for your incredible gift of salvation. Father, if there's one here who does not know you in that initial that initial exposure to the gospel, maybe they're, maybe they're coming to understand it for the first time. Lord, whatever the need is, I pray that you will draw them to yourself. And Lord, I pray as a church in this coming year, we would become, we would drink deeper from your well, that the living waters of salvation would flow through us, living waters flowing to eternal life of those who will hear us. Lord, I believe you have many in this county. And I believe, Lord, that you are calling people to yourself. So may we be your mouthpiece, Lord. May we offer something that the world just simply doesn't offer. Lord, help us to make it attractive through our lives. May we never walk away from it. Keep us, preserve us as we persevere for you. I wanna ask you to stand and maybe this morning for the first time you need to turn your eyes upon Jesus. Or maybe as a Christian again, you just need to be reminded to turn your eyes upon Jesus. I pray you would sing this song to your soul this morning as we sing it together, hymn 413. And if you need to talk, I'll be down here in the front. You can come up and ask to talk. Uh, if you need counsel, we can set up an appointment if you, want, if you prefer. But whatever your need is, I do invite you to come. Let's sing together. Yeah, for a while.